Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'd like to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. You'll notice that in your order of worship, uh, the sermon today and the text that we will study will come from the better part of two chapters. However, we're not going to read all uh, of those verses at this time. I want to read the first five verses of Second Samuel chapter 11. And then as we get into the heart of the sermon, we're going to look at a few more scriptures as well, including that, that beautiful psalm of confession and repentance, Psalm 51. Turn with me now to Second Samuel. 11 verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and he was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. the reading of the sacred word. Would you pray with me now? God, now as we we gather around your sacred word, your worshipers have come with a deliberate yieldedness to the power of your spirit in this room and in our hearts. We're not here by accident, Lord. We are here because we recognize that there may be something in you that can shape everything in us. We pray that you would help us to interpret your scripture. We pray that in that interpretation, we may never be the same again. Speak now, Lord. We are are listening. Amen.
<laughs> All right, epic fail. You didn't think that we would get through an entire series of sermons called Epic Fail and not see some of that, did you? All right, so I picked some clips to get us started today. And I picked specifically some clips that had to do with fitness failures, the gym failures, to make me feel a lot better about a very bad day I had about six or seven weeks ago. I'm in the gym. And sometimes as I'm working out, in between my working sets, I'll do some cardio just to keep the heart rate up. So in between the sets, this particular day, I was doing some step-ups, some bouncing step-ups, which is where you put one foot on the bench, one on the floor, and you just hop and switch. You know, one foot goes up, one to the ground like this. But you do it kind of quick to keep your heart rate up, do it for about 30 seconds, and then you go on about your, your other exercises. I've done it a thousand times. Works every other time. This particular day, something didn't work. And I'm, I'm doing the step-ups, and, and as, I, as I'm really kind of getting into it, I'm at about second number 15 out of 30 seconds, and my right foot sticks on the, on the bench that I'm hopping up to, and my left foot leaves the ground and, and sticks also. And neither one come down, and I land completely flat on my backside. I mean, just spread eagle all over the place. It was completely embarrassing as if I had, like, like I've never been to the gym before. It's like my first visit ever, you know. And I look around, and thankfully, not many people are around except this one guy. He's the one guy who's in every gym. He's the guy who has muscles in places that we don't have places, right? It's that guy. And he's standing, working on a machine, and he sees me fall flat. But see, there's an unspoken code when something like that happens in the gym. It's not unlike those times when on a bench press, I've tried too much and I can't get it up and I have to roll. It's the roll of shame. You roll the thing down because you can't get it up and just kind of empty the, you empty the thing. So you, and you pray to God that nobody's watching. But there is a code. If somebody's watching, unless you're in danger, they don't say anything. Don't say anything. So this guy who's standing there watching me, I mean, I busted, boom, right there next to him. And he's on a machine doing the thing. And when he sees it, this, this is what he does. And walks flat away. And I was so thankful to him. I just wanted to shake his hand and say, thank you. Thank you for not mentioning this epic failure, right? Those things happen to me weekly. And I know they probably happened to you, but you know, when we're talking about epic fails, those are not the kind of epic fails that we worry about the most. I mean, in those epic fails, sometimes we'll fall flat, we'll embarrass ourselves, we'll hurt ourselves, maybe even hurt our pride, we maybe even snap a bone or two. <laughs> we, could, we could break a few things, but truly, the failures that keep us up at night, the failures that we really fear, are the kind of fails that break something in here. A decision that's made, a choice that's made, and something snaps on the inside. Or you may want to put it this way, a truly epic fail. The truly epic fails are the ones that create an interior brokenness. And, and if you have ever experienced the kind of epic fail I'm talking about, I don't have to explain another thing, do I? There are some things we do, some things we choose, things we say, that after they, they have been done, they, they create an interior brokenness. And it can feel as if life is falling apart. 
You know, one of the goals of the spiritual journey is to live a life of integrity, right? I mean, we use that word integrity all the time, but this is what I mean when I say integrity. For something to have integrity, integrity means that there is, that two things are, are connected to one another, that they are integrated with one another. That means to have integrity means that your inner life and your outer life are consistent with one another. That there's what we say sometimes is there is congruency between the hidden you and the public you. And when there's continuity or congruency or consistency between your inner life and your outer life, then you're living a life of integration or a life of integrity. It's what you do that is consistent with who you are. That's integrity. When what you do is consistent with who you are, but there are some failures that can actually rupture the boundary between our inner and outer life. There are some, some failures that can actually create a disconnect, or we might even say it like this, that, that literally there are some choices we can make that can disintegrate us. Some epic fails can disintegrate our lives. And that's no surprise to us because sometimes we'll say things like, oh my gosh, I feel as if my life is just unraveling. I feel like it's just falling apart. And that's because it is. On the inside, there is a disconnection. And sometimes we disconnect our soul from our role and that's when chaos comes. And when we get to that level of fail, when we get to that level of disconnection, integration in our lives, when it feels as if our public life and our private life, our outer life and our inner life are all disconnected, it can leave us wondering if our life is over. I mean, I've really blown it this time. I've blown it so big that I don't think I can recover from this. And I'm here to tell you that you absolutely can live again, that your life is not over. And nowhere is there maybe a better demonstration than the text that we read a moment ago. I mean, it may sound surprising. We're reading about David and Bathsheba here and talking about, about our lives not being over. But I want you to follow me on this because the first time we meet David, David is not king. Do you remember when we came and met David the first time? He's not a king. He's a shepherd. He's not a man. He's a boy. And the prophet Samuel comes to look for the next king of Israel. So he comes to the house of Jesse and he says, Jesse, show me your sons. I believe that the next king of Israel may be in your line. And so he lines up seven of his sons. He has eight. He lines up seven, but David is watching the sheep. Nobody really pays much attention to him anyway and he looks at each one the prophet does and says ah you know the thing is they they look kingly they look and sound strong they they're wise they're skilled I mean I, I get I get it they're great options but he's not here do you have any other sons ah yeah one I mean he's but he's we'll bring him and he brings him David, and the prophet says, this, this is, he's the one. 
And he sees in David that something that nobody else can see. He can see the heart of David. And what's interesting to me is that seven of the sons are lined up. Seven, you know, is the perfect number, right? Hebrew number, heptatic patterns of seven always show up in the Bible. And here's seven uh, plus one. As if to say, my idea of your perfect options for king are here, but God is always working outside the realm of what we think is perfect. And this is where we get that fantastic line, that verse from 1 Samuel, when we hear these words, God does not see as mortals see, for mortals look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart and the the boy who was brought before God had the heart of a king. He didn't know it yet, and his father and brothers didn't know it yet, but God, who looks past the exterior to the core of you, to the true self of you, sees who God desires you to become. And he sees in David, this is the king, because there's something kingly about his heart it's his courage, it's his vision, it's his capacity to have faith, it's his integrity. His inner life and his outer life are consistent, and we see demonstrations of that all through his growing up. He kills a lion and a bear, and you remember the David and Goliath story as well, right? But he's demonstrating this, this provocative truth that God proclaims that in you I see past what everybody else sees which causes the writer of the book of Acts in the New Testament later to reflect back on David, and this is what he says. He says, David was a man after God's own heart. See, David was born to be king. That's who he was. At the core of him, that's his identity, and that's who he was. But when we catch up to him in the verses that we just read a moment ago, we catch up to him at a very dark time in his life when he's living out an identity that is not who he really is. In another, another way that we could put that is his life is beginning to disintegrate because he's not living like who he really is meant to be. You and I, you and I pay attention to this story very closely because that's exactly what happens to any of us. That God sees in you right now what you can be, but you, like me, we are all prone to live out an identity that is not meant to be who we are. We are prone to behave in ways that are not consistent with who God has established us to be on the inner person the interior and so the opening scene of this text gives us a clue that something's about to unravel the opening verse goes this way in the spring of the year the time when kings go out to battle David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah but David remained at Jerusalem what we know is that in the spring that's when you make war because it's the dry season. And in the dry season, the ground is hard. It can stand the weight of, of chariots and troops. That's when good kings go out to make provision for their people. That's when good kings do the work of good kings. 
And if there is war to be had, they have it in the spring. And we're told there's this haunting phrase, the most haunting phrase of that verse is that while the kings were out at spring, David was at home. Already disconnected, already disintegrated from who it is that he is intended to be. Can I just say it this way? That long before we ever make a mistake that we can point to, long before we ever make a behavioral mistake or a choice or before we sin and we're able to point and say, oh, right there is where my life fell apart. Long before that ever happens, there is a disintegration that happens first way before that in the interior life where we neglect to nurture that primary relationship between us and our maker. But let me tell you, when it's nurtured, when we nurture it, when we spend time with Christ every day and we spend time worshiping Christ, not just on Sundays, but on Thursday afternoons, on your own, when we do that, we're abiding in that most crucial, holy, sacred interior space. And when we abide there, guess what happens to us? We are reminded in our time with the Lord of who we are and whose we are, and what we are meant to become. But when we neglect that interior, when we neglect deliberate attentiveness to the interior life, <laughs> we're doomed. We will unravel, and that unraveling may be kept quiet for a while, it may be kept invisible for a while, but sooner or later, the disintegration of our interior life will find a way to live itself out in our external world. Yeah. This is why Jesus said, above all things in Matthew's gospel, he said, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and, and all these things will be added to you as well. In other words, seek first the reign or the realm of God's love in your life. Seek first his right things, his righteous living. And when that's happening on the inside, you will have everything you need. It reminds me of a great story when Jesus is walking through Samaria one day. We're, we read about this in the fourth chapter of John's gospel. He and the disciples have been on a long journey and, and they're tired and they're thirsty and they're hungry. And the disciples say to Jesus, teacher, eat something, eat. And Jesus offers this powerful line. He says, I have food you know not of. When we are deliberately attentive to the interior life, our primary occupation our primary occupation, deliberate attentiveness to the interior life, then we eat food that the world knows not of. And it sustains us. Well, it happened, as the text says, one afternoon. The first that continues is, it happened one late afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Walking about, I want you to pay attention to what happens next. He sees a beautiful woman. There's no sin in seeing. There's no sin in noticing. 
But what happens in verse 4 changes everything. Listen to the verbs that are given to us in verse 4. So David hmm, sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he lay with her. Listen to those verbs again. Sent and get. Came, lay. One Hebrew translation even puts it this way. Fetch. Those are verbs not of a king. Those are verbs of conquest and domination. And some would say rape. And David had come to the throne to replace a king like that. And now he had become the very thing that he used to despise. When you and I neglect deliberate attentiveness to the interior life with Christ, we can become the very thing that we used to despise. In fact, when that happens, we are prone to succumb to the greatest temptation of all. Do you know what the greatest temptation of all is? It's not a sexual sin. It's not a moral ethical sin that sometimes occupies so much of our conversations. You know what the greatest temptation of all is? To forget who you are. When you can forget who you are, you become capable of doing anything. You become capable of becoming anything. Listen, when you are deliberately attentive to the interior life, man, you can do anything. But when you're not, you can do anything. The greatest temptation of all is to forget who we are, and we're all prone. But guess what? It gets worse. Soon, word gets sent to David, I'm pregnant. So the first cover-up attempt, we didn't read these texts, but the, the, the king attempts to cover up his mistake, his sin. So you know what he does? He sends for her husband, Uriah, who is at war. Brings him home. You know, you deserve some leave. Go and be with your wife. Stay home. Wash your feet. Be comforted, hoping that in his comfort, he assumes that the baby, which is born later, is his. But he comes home, and instead of going inside the house, he sleeps on the stairs outside, refusing to sleep in the same room with his wife. And why, when he was asked? Because how can I go be comforted by my wife when my king's army is at war? See, Uriah had more integrity than even the king. His inner life and outer life, his soul and his role were so connected that he couldn't be shaken. He was unflappable, so the king tried harder. Okay, well, come to a feast in your honor and tries to get him drunk. Gets him drunk and tries to get him then to go into the house. He still refused. So it leaves David with his only option. He sends orders to Joab, the commanding officer, that go into battle. And when you hit the fiercest moment of the battle, I want you to send Uriah to the front lines. And at just the right moment, I want you to pull back all of your other men, leaving him exposed. And that's what he did. And that's how he died. And then a messenger comes to the king and says to the king, Uriah is dead. Ah. 
it worked. So then we read the most haunting, disturbing line of the whole saga when David says to the messenger, this is what I want you to tell Joab. I know Joab's feeling low about this, but I want you to tell Joab these words. Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it and encourage him. The most disturbing phrase in that whole verse is this one here. Do not let this matter trouble you. Because as readers, you and I know exactly what he's talking about. The conspiracy, the cover-up. Don't let this matter trouble you. But in Hebrew, do you know that it's translated even with more fierce language than that in some translations? (laughs) This is what he says. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Can you sit with that for just a minute? (laughs) Don't let this thing, which is evil, be evil in your eyes. Beloved, when you and I can change what we think about a thing, we're willing to do anything and everything, even that which is evil. It reminds me of an article that I read not too long ago about this book. The book title is The Nazi Doctors, Mm. Medical Killing and the Psychology of Genocide. And the author, Lifton, talks about his project was attempting to understand how is it that good Doctors, good citizens would eventually get to the place where they conducted experiments on human beings that we would all now say is absolutely evil. And this is his comment. He says, my argument in this study is that the medicalization of killing, the imagery of killing in the name of healing, was crucial to that terrible step. At the heart of the Nazi enterprise then is the destruction, watch, of the boundary between healing and killing. Somewhere along the way, the doctors had to buy into that notion that what they were doing was serving a greater good. Don't let this thing uh, be evil in your eyes. Reminds me also of the genocide in Rwanda in the early 1990s. When the Hutus uh, attempted and almost succeeded at exterminating the Tutsis, and part of of their strategy was to dehumanize them and and their language, their lingo in the process of that that horrible, horrible decade, that the, the lingo that they used was the Tutsis are grasshoppers and cockroaches, and they need to be exterminated. When you can begin to believe that someone is a cockroach and in need of extermination, it begins to justify all kinds of evil that previously you would have never called evil. Let not this thing be seen as evil in your eyes. I thought about it this week as I read an article that disturbed me to no end. An article about a protest in uh, Newton County just down the road, a protest at the courthouse because they were about to pass legislate, about to pass an ordinance allowing for the building of a mosque for their Muslim citizens. And a protest gathered, armed protest, 
And one of the protesters was asked, why are you here? What's, what's the deal? This is, this is a mosque, like a church or a synagogue would be. What's, what's the deal? And his direct quote was, the building of this mosque is an act of war upon the U.S. An act of war? A place of worship? Where Muslim neighbors, where Muslim friends who go to school with our children, a place where they want to go and worship and love their God and understanding of God and be shaped like we are attempting to be shaped in this place, an act of war, but if you can get there mentally and assume that this development is an act of war, well, then it's going to justify anything and everything because if you change how you see a thing, it changes what you do about a thing. I'm reminded of this, this powerful verse from Isaiah. Listen to these, these words. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. <laughs> We're not just talking we're not just talking about items that make the news or history, but beloved, I'm telling you with a pastor's heart that more and more lately has begun to break over the condition of our nation. I, I'm telling you, we are in a place right now where culturally and nationally as a people, we are beginning to unravel, unravel. And we have begun to call evil good and good evil. We call the things that are light dark and the things that are dark light. And we call that which is sweet bitter and that which is bitter sweet. And that is the textbook definition of disintegration. And if you have any doubts at all, have you been watching the presidential election? Because I could ask half of you in this room, hey, would you give me a long list of all the vices and problems of this candidate? And you would. And I could ask the other half of you, hey, can you give me a long list of all the vices and problems of this candidate? And you would. And we could hold both of those vices up and we can ask ourselves, my goodness, my have candidates changed? My have elections changed? But come November, you and I will put one of them in office. And we have to ask ourselves, at what point have we allowed ourselves to call evil good and good evil? At what point have we said to ourselves, do not let this thing be seen as evil in your eyes? Now, beloved, I won't get elected mayor talking this way. And that's okay because I'm not running. But I am your pastor. And I want to remind you of the thing I remind my children and the thing I remind the guy who looks at me in the mirror when I sometimes shave his face. And it is this. If we are not deliberately attentive to the interior life, 
then when we're watching all of the life around us unravel, when we watch all hell break loose outside of us, we cannot point and say, my, my, look how the world around us is falling apart because we are culpable. It is the church of Jesus Christ that must take seriously if we are those who are in Christ and if Christ is in us, then there must be integrity in our witness. There must be, at the core of us, our identity in Christ must be lived out in such a way that the world around us sees that there is Christ in us. It got worse. The baby in her womb died. He was confronted by the prophet. The prophet came to him and said, do you realize what you have done? And David's heart broke. In fact, he was so overwhelmed with grief over what he had done and how he had somehow blindly been just kind of sucked up into the abyss, just moved along. That he looked and could not recognize his own life. How did I get here? That's a question that's not unfamiliar to some of us. How did I get to this place? And he falls on the ground and he grieves and he rents his clothing and he, he starves himself. He tries to starve himself and he grieves and he wants to die. But the grace of God wouldn't let him. See, Jesus said that everything that is hidden will one day be brought into the light. There is nothing hidden that will not one day be revealed. But Jesus also was the one who went to every person who had blown it and said, okay, have you blown it? Blown it big? Then here's the game plan. Cut it out. Stop. Repent. And sin no more. And David comes to that place of grace when he cries out to God in his heaviness of heart, in his penitent heart. And we have it in Psalm 51. And I want to read this to you. But I want to read it to you not as some biblical character who fell that we're studying today. And, and, and as you hear it, I don't want you to hear it as, yeah, there are public officials around us that rise and they fall. I'm talking about you and me. Can we hear Psalm 51 as an invitation to be broken before the Lord so that the Lord may put us together? Listen to these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Just stop right there for a moment. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. There are some sins, some choices that we make that will be hard to forget. Even after we are redeemed and after we are forgiven and after we've put things back together, sometimes it's, it's, after you see, it's hard to not see. Once you see, you cannot not see. My sin, David says, is ever before me. He continues, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in, not my sight, but your sight so that you are justified in your sentence, blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. 
You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart, the place where you see me and saw me as a boy. You desire truth in the inward being. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then the power verse, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Beloved, if you have come to the place of unraveling in your life and you are afraid that it's over, it is because the grace of Christ that I can tell you your life is not over.